I would be, I would be curious to know how many of you have ever attended a prophecy conference. Anybody here ever attend a prophecy conference? Not too many hands, not too many acknowledgements. Well, I imagine that some of you, if not lots of you who are, let's say, more mature saints, um, probably have attended a prophecy conference uh, back in the 70s when Hal Lindsey was a best-selling author. Um, he was all the rage, millions and millions of copies, late great planet Earth. Um, and so people, believers and unbelievers uh, alike, were very, very interested in prophecy in the 70s. Uh, one problem with Hal Lindsey was he had a, had a bent toward um, date setting and being wrong, um, but he was trying to get people interested, and people were definitely interested in prophecy back then. I've been to at least one big prophecy conference. Um, it was big because it was in Texas, and everything is big in Texas. Uh, not only that, it was in Dallas, and uh, a while ago it seemed like, or they acted as if, um, in Dallas they knew everything and anything about Bible prophecy. So uh, there is that, I've had that experience. But just looking at a show of hands, most of you, at least from what I saw, have not been to a prophecy conference, and I don't want you to be left behind. Oh, I got a better response second hour than first hour. We're going to do something better than take a field trip. We don't need to go to Dallas. Um, we don't need to have a prophecy conference to learn about prophecy. Uh, we're going to do the best thing there is to do. The one person who knows more about it than anyone else is Jesus. And so today we are going to hear from Jesus about Bible prophecy. And so if you have a Bible, you can find the 24th chapter of the gospel according to Matthew, where Jesus talks about things prophetic. And as you're turning there, um, I do have some questions that we can ask ourselves that kind of get us warmed up to this idea. I have four questions I'd like to ask by way of introduction as you're finding that text. The first one is, what is prophecy? Again, I don't want to leave anyone out or behind. Um, prophecy has to do with the future, predicting the future. So that's what prophecy is. It's not just fortune-telling and guessing. If it's biblical prophecy, it's saying this is going to happen someday and then that thing that is said to have going, uh, it's going to happen ends up happening. We see it old to New Testament. We see it old waiting for future. We see it new waiting for future also. My next question by way of introduction is, uh, why is biblical prophecy important? Well, we can answer that lots of ways, but we can certainly answer it by saying it's important because the Bible's filled with it. There are I don't know how many biblical prophecies. I once knew because it's a good point of trivia, but there are so many biblical prophecies in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, so apparently it's an important matter. In fact, sometimes when people are defending the legitimacy of the Bible, one point of defense is there are so many amazing prophecies, um, you can't just predict this stuff and have it actually come true historically to the detail that it was given. So it's important because there's so much of it in the Bible. It's also important because Christians uh, are called to think about the future, to hear from people like Jesus and his apostles, and in light of what's going to happen, we're supposed to think differently, and we're supposed to act differently. We're supposed to live in light of Christ's second coming, for example. We're to live in light of the fact that we're accountable to God. So there's this ethical aspect to studying the end times that should matter in the here and now. Things like don't worry. That would be something that actually is related to prophecy. If you're in Christ and you'll be raised with Him, you don't have to worry about um, those who can destroy your physical body. See, that's a real practical example from biblical prophecy. My next question, I have four of them. I'm still waiting for you to find Matthew 24, if you haven't. Number three, what has made prophecy fall on hard times? Well, I'm speculating here. I don't have a biblical answer. But one thing that's caused biblical prophecy to fall on hard times, that we don't have conferences the way they used to back in the 70s, uh, is because of so much strange, strangeness that went on, so much oddity that went on. That big Bible prophecy conference that I went to in Dallas, Texas, 
was one where I spotted a scholar who I admire and look up to. He's in heaven now, but I saw uh, S. Lewis Johnson there. And so uh, after the speaker, one of the speakers was done speaking, the group of individuals I was with, we went over to S. Lewis Johnson and, and we said, Mr. Johnson, what did, you, what did you think of that seminar? And in his southern accent, he said, I believe it was rather hokey. And we loved it that S. Lewis Johnson said it was hokey. Because it was. Because so many crazy, hokey, strange oddities uh, developed over time. I don't know if they just didn't have any more prophecies to talk about. And so they were finding strange things that ought not be talked about. And before you know it, we don't want to go to these strange conferences. Also, my third question, what's made them fall on hard, t- hard times? Why don't we have them today so much? Well, part of it also is because sometimes the tail starts wagging the dog. We have that figure of speech in, in our culture. Uh, the, 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 the view of the end times takes over everything else. It eclipses everything else. Someone once said, a friend of mine said that, uh, who was living in Dallas at the time, again, capital Bible prophecy once upon a time in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, he said, everyone in Dallas, it seems, is an eschatologian. And if you're looking for big words, you came to the right place. Um, if you're not looking for big words, I'll explain it to you. Eschatology is a study of the end times. Uh, and so if you're an eschatologian, you're a professional studier of the end times. Instead of, my friend said, theologians, experts in God and studying God and his ways, everybody in Dallas is an eschatologian. And he wasn't complimenting people in Dallas. Sorry, by the way, if you're from Dallas, good job for coming to Omaha. Um, (laughs) All of this is because of the prominence of Dallas Theological Seminary, where S. Lewis Johnson was a professor, by the way, but I digress, and its influence back in the day. Well... One more comment about why it's fallen on hard times, and then I have a fourth question. And that is because it seems as if at our Bible prophecy conferences, and I'll include myself in this, we became rather certain about seemingly everything. And the strange thing is, as we'll hear today, if we get far enough in Matthew 24, if we ever get to Matthew 24, we'll hear Jesus say that we can't be certain especially when it comes to the specifics of the timing of the second coming. And yet so many of our charts and graphs and lectures started to sound and sometimes today sound like we can be certain about all of it. Well, there are some things we should be certain about and other things we have to say like Jesus. No one knows the day or the hour or the time or the hour. We have to say we don't know for sure. And when we're sounding like we know it all, we're probably doing something not helpful. Final question, I promise, uh, at least for this introduction, and that would be, what are some keys to understanding biblical prophecy? What are some keys? I'm sure there are more of them, but I think we should start with humility. As we look to Matthew 24, as we look to any other prophetic text, let's be humble and let's acknowledge that there's probably a good reason why most Christians pre-1970, before that too, said in their creeds and confessions things like this. Can you finish my sentence? He will come again to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have what? No end. Period, paragraph. We better be really careful about what we say next because it's hard. It's complicated. Another key to understanding it, not only humility, would be Let's remember the original audience. Today, when we look at Matthew 24, I'm going to keep saying disciples, the disciples, the the disciples, the disciples. Before you think about how this applies to us in the 21st century, let's first think of it in terms of where they were and what they were looking forward to. Then we'll talk about ourselves. Another key to understanding it would be looking at the Old Testament and see how it does prophecy and how it does fulfillment. Think with me about this, please. In the Old Testament, oftentimes, you have a prophecy regarding the first coming of Jesus, and then right with it, we have what we would say is a prophecy regarding the second coming. Both are true, both are going to happen, both are going to be done by Jesus, but there's no distinction between timing when you're looking at the prophecy itself. I think we should learn from that. Matthew, or Matthew, Isaiah 9 is an example. It's one of our favorite Christmas texts. Uh, Isaiah, Isaiah 9, 6, 
the government, uh, he's the Prince of Peace, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And some of you at Christmas time think, really? And then the pastor has to say, remember, this is not only talking about the first coming, it's also talking about the second coming. His kingdom will have no end. Both are there, both are true, but there's not a separation. And we know, actually, living where we live, there's a separation in timing. As we look at Matthew 24, sometimes there's a separation in timing between what was going to happen in the apostles' lives or the disciples' lives and what's going to happen in the future. One final thing, I promise, I'm taking too long here, and that would be when it comes to keys to understanding. We need to understand that in prophecy, sometimes in the Old Testament, we're going to learn from that example, it's inspired, you have types. A type is where you have a, a something happening, a figure, a key figure, a thing, an event, and it points to something that comes later that is greater. So, for example, we have the priesthood in the Old Testament, and Jesus is the ultimate priest. We have the lamb sacrifice, the day of atonement in the Old Testament. Jesus is the spotless lamb. So the type, the the lesser true thing designed to point to something greater and more significant and more ultimate, we call it typology, the type and the antitype. If that's too fancy for you, we have shadows that are real and significant, like the temple in the Old Testament. And then you have the substance. Jesus says, he's the temple. And I bring this up because in our passage, I think, it, that's, I, I think we have that sort of thing going on. Something's going to happen in the lifetime of those surrounding the disciples and its fulfillment of prophecy as a type. But you know what? When the second coming comes... It's the substance, it's the antitype, it's the ultimate thing that what happened in their lifetime was merely anticipating and looking forward to. That's a long introduction. Thank you for your patience. I appreciate your patience. Let's go ahead and look at verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. Temple is huge in the Old Testament as significance. It's huge in the New Testament as significance. The temple is where what happens? The temple, it's in the capital city of Jerusalem. The temple is where the unique dwelling of God exists. It's where the people go and meet with God in an extraordinary, unique way. It's where there is sacrifice. It is where there is uh, the priesthood. It's where there's this unique kind of fellowship that, that happens. It's a sign of the blessing of God, the presence of God. It is hugely important. Remember, Jesus referred to the temple as his father's house. And there's corruption, and so he drove out the money changers. But it's his father's house. So he was passionate about it. The temple is massively important when it comes to reading the Bible. And Jesus here is leaving the temple, and the disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. Why would they do that? Well, because Jesus has been rebuking the leaders of the temple. Remember in chapter 23, it was woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. He's pronouncing judgment upon the leaders of the nation of Israel. And if judgment's coming upon the nation of the leaders of Israel, it doesn't look good for Israel. And as we're going to see, it doesn't look good for the temple. It doesn't look good for the temple at all. In fact, historically, the temple has been destroyed in the past because of the judgment of God. And based upon what Jesus has been saying... It's one of these moments. And the disciples don't quite get it at this point in time. Let's give them a break. I don't think I'd get it either. Hey, yeah, but Jesus, look how magnificent that building is that's part of the temple structure. And oh, look over there. And they're on the Mount of Olives. So this is the Olivet Discourse, it's called. They've got a great view. Some of you have seen that view of the destroyed temple. It's still a great view. And they can point out the gold. And they can point out the architecture and the beauty and the splendor and the magnificence. Surely it's not going to be destroyed. Surely we can keep the temple. Surely, surely, Jesus, just, just admire the beauty. 
I won't take the time to read the, the, some of the woes, but they really get dicey in verse 29 of Matthew 23. Sentencing them to condemnation and destruction. And then I, I guess I will point out to you in 2338, which is what we looked at some time ago when we were moving toward this. 38 says, see your house is left to you desolate. Oftentimes, the house, in fact, hundreds of times, the house of Israel, the place where you go that's safe, the place where you go where there's blessing, but inseparable from the house of Israel is the temple of God. So Jesus has already been telegraphing his passes, if you will. We, we already see where this is going. And the disciples are like, but Jesus, but Jesus, did you, did you notice how, how, how magnificent it is? Then verse 2 says, but he answered them, you see all these, do you not? And they might be thinking, yeah, we're making sure you see it all, right? And Jesus says, that's right, I see it. And you see all these amazing structures and these buildings and all that it signifies and all of its beauty and magnificence. And then he says, truly or earnestly, I say to you in verse 2, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Dun, 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 dun. Give me a J, J. Give me a U, U. Right? Judgment is what he's saying. Not in a casual way like I was making it. Judgment is coming to the house of Israel. Not a single stone will be left. It'll be thrown down. Some of you have been there before, and if you're like me, you, you're there on the Mount of Olives and you think, the temple is awesome. It's one, of the, it's one of the coolest things I've ever seen. It's absolutely amazing. You can go down under and see the infrastructure and just be in absolute awe at how awesome the temple is. And isn't it kind of funny? That's post-destruction. <laughs> It's kind of like people that, you know, talk about the beauty of God's creation and they go to Colorado. I'm like, it's beautiful, all right, but you realize this is post-fall. <laughs> it's a wreck. <laughs> Can you imagine how beautiful it would have been pre-fall? Paradise. Not discounting Colorado. I'm a fan. So just so you know. It's beautiful. But think about before. The temple's amazing. You should go see it. It's absolutely crazy. But it's post-archaeological wisdom trying to piece the thing back together because this happened. This happened in AD 70 with the Romans conquering the Jews and overtaking Jerusalem, defiling the temple, and persecuting Christians. Horrifically so. And it's still amazing looking, but can you imagine how it would have looked back then? Here's the question of the disciples in verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us. Notice these, there's some important things here. When will these things be? When. The when is important to them. Then it says, and what... This is the second factor. What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So they want to know when the temple is going to be destroyed and Israel judged. They want to know what the sign or signs will be that come before that happening. They th and they think that the destruction of the temple, the second coming, and the end of the age happen together. And I don't blame them one bit. And in a certain sense, I agree with them. These things are inseparably linked. They happen together in that sense. They're inseparably linked. And yet, Christians who've gone before us have tended, as in most of them, to acknowledge while these things are inseparably linked, there is a distinction when it comes to the timing when these things happen. They may not all happen together, but they all do happen and they all happen because of one another. But they may not all happen together at the same time. The disciples would have thought that. I probably would have thought that as well. Let me tell you, if you don't know this already, Matthew chapter 24 is challenging to interpret. Some would say the most challenging of all prophetic texts. It's where Jesus says the most about it, and it's arguably the most challenging 
prophetic text there is in all of the Bible. I don't think it's been very hard so far. What do you think? <laughs> well, we're just getting started. There, there are three major views, and this might help you. <clears throat> One view is that all of the things that Jesus prophesies in Matthew 24 happen in A.D. 70. Okay? So it's all past. Okay, that, that's one view. I don't think that's the right view. Well, I'll, I won't get ahead of myself. There, that's one view. It's the preterist view. Other extreme, none of these things are fulfilled in AD 70, and it's all future. I don't know actually that many people who hold either view today. People do. I just don't know many of them myself. There is a third view, and I don't think it's a cop-out view. I think it's an old standard view that needs the dust blown off of it. And that would be, both are true. In AD 70, the temple is destroyed. Historic fact. It's a judgment from God via the hand of the Romans, as God has been known to do. But it's a type. It's awful... I hate to say it, but, it, but it's, it's lesser awful than the greater ultimate awful that's going to happen that's not just localized in the Middle East. It's worldwide at the second coming. And this is a shadow of the substance, which is this. Just so you know, we don't have to agree on this, and I think we can still be friends. Not sure about some of you. <laughs> I kid. But it's where I'm coming from and understanding this. You've got to look at AD 70 and the disciples. And I'm going to look at it as a, as a type, but not the ultimate, because there are certain things in, my, in this text that are going to cause us to say, this looks more like worldwide, catastrophic, not localized. So it's with a view towards something greater. But I'll be honest with you, it's still hard to understand. There's a reason why people have said, this is hard to understand. I'm going to quote to you Matthew Poole, who wrote a commentary on every book of the Bible. It's an old one. Uh, I have a three-volume set. I won't ask for a show of hands if you've heard or have Matthew Poole's commentary on the whole Bible, but it's, I don't know if it's the whole Bible or New Testament. Anyway, uh, 17th century Protestant English nonconformist. Here's what he says regarding this passage. It is agreed by the divines. That's the way they used to speak of theologians because they study God. They study the divine. It is agreed by divines that the destruction of Jerusalem, that's the 70 AD thing, was a type of the destruction of the world. Second coming stuff. And therefore, most of the signs are common to both. For me personally, that commentary and that statement is worth its weight in gold. Um, Matthew Poole, where have you been all of my pastoral preaching hermeneutical, exegetical, expositional, whatever other kind of fancy word you want to use, life. I find it interesting that he says, in his day, it's agreed upon. I don't think it's agreed upon today, but I'm in agreement. <laughs> so I think it's going to help us work through it and say, close, 80-70. The disciples would have thought in those terms. But it's actually anticipating something more awful, greater, and significant Christ's second coming. So I hope that helps you. I realize we're kind of in the weeds on some of these things and on the deep end of the pool, but I think we're doing okay. Ready? Okay, now here's the answer. Here's the answer that Jesus gives. They ask the question, they want to know the, they want to know when, they want to know what, and Jesus says in verse 4, and Jesus answered them, or it says, and Jesus answered them in verse 4, see that no one leads you astray. He, remember, he's addressing the disciples, don't be led astray about the timing of these things or the signs of these things. So let's first think of them. But by way of application, I would think of us as well. Don't be led astray. We might not be waiting for the eighty seventy destruction of the temple, but we are waiting for the second coming and there are similar things. Don't be led astray about prophecy. Don't be led astray about the when or the what of prophecy. How about verse 5? For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. Or I am the, if you don't know what Christ means and you're new to the Bible, Christ means Messiah, King, Deliverer, Protector, Provider, Savior, okay? Or if you're an unbeliever, Judge, 
Both are true of the Messiah King. Jesus says, be aware, be warned, be on your guard. Why? Many will come in God's name, in the name of Christ, saying, I am the Christ. I am the deliverer. I am the judge. I am the Messiah. And they will lead many astray. Now, I don't like, I don't like that. I hope you don't like it either. But I like it that Jesus tells them, and by application, us ahead of time. Why would I say that? It's good to know truth. It's good to know how it's going to be. It's not all going to be unicorns and whatever else you might think is positive. It's not all going to be positive. Everybody who talks about Christ is not talking about Christ. It wasn't true then. There were fakers saying, we're the judges, or fakers saying, we're the deliverers. And the same thing is true and always has been true, and I think, sadly, always will be true. And he's saying to Christians, don't buy in, but do notice, many buy in. I think that's good and important to know from Jesus, especially to my 21st century American pragmatist mind that says, if it works, it's true. Which is not true. If there's a crowd there must be something good and right and holy and godly, especially a crowd where people are talking about Christ and Jesus. And Jesus says, many will follow them. Don't you do it, disciples. And I'm going to echo that. Don't you do it, later disciples. That's healthy. That's helpful. That's good to know about prophecy. And since they ask for signs, let's keep going. In verse 6, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. So bad things happening in the world. Let's just keep it that simple. See that you are not alarmed. So first it's don't let anyone lead you astray. Now he's saying, see that you're not alarmed. I told you earlier, prophecy is ethical because this is going to happen. Act a certain way. So don't be led astray. Don't be alarmed. And then he says, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased and love of many will grow cold or the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures till the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. A lot going on there. Let's simplify it. Bad things are going to happen in the world just like bad things have always been happening in the world since the fall. Whether it be earthquakes or wars or other kinds of normal bad things, they're going to keep happening. So that's part of it, but that's not the end. Not only that, there are going to be the false speakers for God, the false prophets, and they lead many astray. That's another kind of bad thing. Lawlessness, another kind of bad thing. And it's going to get really hard. But you know what? The true believers are going to persevere to the very end because that's what true believers do. So you need to know this. Be aware. Bad things are going to happen. So don't listen to people who say, bad things are happening. Therefore, don't believe in Jesus. People are persecuting you. Therefore, don't believe in Jesus. Because you know, if you believe in Jesus, everything's going to be awesome. Everything's going to be wonderful. You're going to be prosperous. No, all kinds of bad things are going to happen. The natural kind of bad things that happen and then the extra bad non-natural things are going to happen because you're a Christian, but don't think this is the end and don't stop being a Christian even though the pressure is there and many all who profess faith are going to walk away. Don't do that. Don't be that person. I'm telling you this ahead of time. This is super helpful for, for those disciples. It's actually super super helpful for us. And then I, I love it that he talks about the gospel there in verse 14. 
And this gospel, this good news of salvation because of the work of Christ, the good news of the kingdom, we've already seen that's synonymous with the new creation. And the only way you're a part of the new creation is to trust in Christ and to have his works benefit you, life, death, resurrection, all of those things, even though some of, there are, some of them are yet to happen, this good news of the new creation of the kingdom will be pro- proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. I've got to take a breath. Lots going on, but some really important things are Christianity doesn't mean a Christianized world. In fact, it looks a lot like the opposite. But just because we don't have a Christianized world doesn't mean the gospel has failed. In fact, the gospel is going to succeed. And so we, we've got to stop thinking badly and listening to, to people who teach the exact opposite of what he's saying here. Bad's going to happen. All kinds of bad's going to happen. And, oh, the gospel's failed. We must have the wrong gospel. No, that's not it at all. That's not it at all. Stick with the one true Christ who came to save his people from their sins. Chapter 1. The gospel is going to be successful as he indicates in verse 14. Think about how helpful that would have been to the disciples. Would have been amazingly helpful to the disciples. I mean, after all, they see Jesus as the king. And so if Jesus is not the right then and there conquering, right then and there setting up his kingdom, you know what? The whole thing is broken. We better tinker with the mechanics. No, no, we say no. I think the same way today. Hostility doesn't mean the gospel's broken. Actually, how about the fact that Jesus said these things are going to happen? Did he call them birth pangs yet? Birth pains? Yeah. So, okay. So he's, so how about this? When I see bad things happening in the world, I'm not going to be a date setter. I hope you're not a date setter either. Unless it's with your spouse. I'm going to see bad things. I'm going to see these kinds of things and saying, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return. It's even safe to say, you know what, with each one of these things, with each day that goes by, we're a day closer. And as the gospel goes out around the world, we're a day closer. So it's okay to read them as signs. Just be careful that you don't do what Jesus is going to warn about later when he talks about no one knows the day or the hour. So let's not over-pendulum swing and, and get out of balance. It's okay to watch the world around you and say, there are signs. They were signs for them pre eighty seventy, right? They're in the 30s, less than 40 years away. Destruction of the temple, ransacking, judgment of God. They can be looking for such things. I think we look for such things too. I I think what Jesus says here is worth its weight for me as a Christian, even in the 21st century, in gold. What do I do with people who walk away? I've got a category for that. Makes me sad, breaks my heart, but I do have a category for that. Should I join them? I have a category for that. No. Yeah, but it looks like everything's wrong and out of control. Jesus told us ahead of time, this is how it's going to keep going until the end. Okay. This helps my perseverance. This helps my keep looking to Christ. Keep proclaiming the gospel. This is so very, very helpful. Then, verse 15. I made it to verse 32 first hour, and I don't want you guys to feel shortchanged. And so I'm going to do my very best to get to verse 32, but sometimes we're really going to have to pick it up. Verse 15 says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, that would be Daniel 9.27 and Daniel 11.31. When you see that, remember he's talking to the disciples. Standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who were in Judea flee to the mountains. Talking to the disciples, you're going to see all of these things happening, but it's not the end yet. In other words, in light of that verse, the last verse we read, don't flee. It's not time yet. But when you see the abomination of desolation, you know, like Daniel talks about, 
it's time. If you're in Judea, Judea is a bro, uh, umbrella kind of catch all, not catch all, but catch a lot term geographically. It includes, it includes Jerusalem. It includes the surrounding region, other cities, other towns. If you're anywhere close to Jerusalem, get out of town because it's going to be horrific what's going to happen then. And first, I think we should interpret it as disciples, 70 AD. Because you know what happens? Well, first of all, you know what happened before this? Well, what happened before this was the abomination of desolation in 168 BC. So a couple of hundred years before this, Antiochus Epiphanes, pagan altar in the temple of God, and they sacrifice, I don't know if it was one pig or multiple pigs. The unclean animals, like insult to injury, you ought not be in there. And not only are you in there, you have taken what's holy and made it desecrated, dirty, spiritually filthy, unclean by sacrificing swine. So that's happened historically already. I actually think that's what he has in mind when he says, let the reader understand. Every Jewish person, like the disciples, knew exactly what had happened a couple of hundred years beforehand with Antiochus Epiphanes. And he's saying something like that is going to happen again. And when you see that happening, now it's going to happen, and it did happen historically by the hands of the Romans. And so when the Romans occupy the temple, I mean, the Jews aren't even supposed to be in there when it comes to the Holy of Holies. You, you, don't, you don't have every... Mr. and Mrs. Davidson, or Mr. and Mrs. Abrahamson, or whatever with a Jewish name, you're not allowed to go in and do sacrifices. So not only did the Jews not just come in, but now we've got the Romans? This is, that is an abomination of desolation. It's abominable and it makes it desolate. God's not in this place. And so it's happened already historically. Let the reader understand it's going to happen again. And here's what you need to know if you're a disciple. You need to run. Because all heaven is going to break loose via the hand of God through the Romans as a judgment upon the sinful professed people of God. Pretty wild, huh? Really wild. Flee to the mountains. Get away. Some really helpful notes in the Reformation Study Bible on the historical things, but I'm going to skip it for the sake of time. Um, and go to verse 16. I guess we already looked at verse 16, so we can skip that as well because we've already covered it. How about verse 17? Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, they, you know, mercy be upon them is the idea. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. That's probably pretty straightforward for us to understand. Maybe the Sabbath part isn't, but Sabbath, I, it could be because of Sabbath tra travel restrictions, but um, it's a crisis Probably because it's hard to travel on Sabbath because things are congested because of the city or things like that. Regardless, we get the flow, right? Harder to travel if you're a pregnant woman. Um, it's going to be difficult, harder to travel in winter. But he says it's urgent. Don't go back inside your house if you're up on your roof making repairs. What you need to do is grab your family and run because it's going to be horrific. It's going to be the judgment of God. Via the Romans, if it's 80, 70. Prophecy. Near prophecy. If we're talking about second coming, it's far prophecy. One prefigures, anticipates, it seems to me, the, the other. So my question for this, uh, how about verse 21? Then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. Could that be referring to AD 70? At least the first part. <laughs> but in a sense, it's never been like this before. This is a, of course, there's been defilement, 
But it's never been like this, and it's never been on this kind of scale. This is going to be awful. And it's meant to be the most awful, especially if it's done in anticipation of what's going to happen worldwide in the future when Christ returns. So this is the most awful it's ever been or ever will be. But it's with a view toward, I think, not for sure, what will happen with Christ not judging via the Romans, but Christ judging himself personified at his return. Then it says in verse 22, let's keep moving. And if those days had not been cut short, this is really fascinating. How about this? No human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Things that make you go, hmm, or hmm. I mean, some of you still don't think the Bible says things like elect. So welcome to the party. The water's warm. Come on in. Um, (laughs) This is not just a Pauline doctrine of Ephesians 1. I mean, this is very practical. You know what? It's going to be so awful and so terrible that from a human perspective, apart from it being cut short, I say human perspective because God's sovereign plan is unfolding, but just so you know how awful and terrible this is, that elect people would lose their salvation, which is impossible. But that's how bad it is. Really, really interesting thing happening here. God cuts it short, at least from our perspective. For the sake of the elect. Now we might know where the Apostle Paul gets it where he says he does all things for the sake of the elect. Fascinating. Verse 23. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, here's the Messiah, here's here's the deliverer or the judge, uh, or, or, or there he is, Jesus says, do not believe it. That's really good for us to know because sometimes Christians think Christians are supposed to believe everything. Especially when people talk about things in the name of Christ. And here is Christ, who you're supposed to believe in, saying, don't believe. Maybe that, I saw, I was shopping with my wife the other day, and there was a, a, a plaque or a mirror that said, believe. And I thought, oh, it's so nice. Maybe Jesus would say, don't believe. <laughs> Right, We believe in the true object of faith, but there are those who claim to be the true object, object of faith. And Jesus says, don't believe. Don't trust them. They're fakers. They're liars. This is biblical prophecy to think about that. Verse 24 says, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders. Notice it doesn't say they say they will. They actually do, which is a bit of a, a, bit of a mind bender. Supernatural things are happening, but they're fakers. They're false. How does that happen? talked about it last week, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. That's how bad they are and how bad things are going to get. They won't succeed. Some are going to walk away. We actually know from Jesus which kind aren't going to. But that's how bad it is. So in one sense, you know what, if it's this bad, if it were this bad then, and if it's going to be this bad before the second coming, I think it is. In one sense, it's not baffling to my mind why professing Christians deny the faith. Things are that bad. Maybe what should baffle us is that not everyone denies the faith. But the elect of God are the elect of God and He's merciful and kind and sustaining to bring about perseverance. We should say, we should say thanks be to God who always give, leads us in victory, as Paul would say elsewhere. Then verse 25 says, See, I've told you beforehand. I think that's really good. See, I, I'm giving you the heads up on this. In some ways, I want to say, don't tell me the bad news. But if I don't know the bad news and how it's going to happen, I might draw some really bad theological conclusions. I'm going to interpret uh, my experience, which is going to create my theology, and I'm going to be a theological crazy person. I'm going to lose my ever-loving Christian mind. So I like it that Jesus says, I told you beforehand. Biblical prophecy. Here's how it's going to be. Here's how bad it's going to be. Don't fall for it. That's, that's ethical. That's helpful. 
How, how are you guys doing? You okay? It's, it's kind of dark doom and gloom stuff, right? The apostles, the disciples could have said to Jesus, and I'm not saying they did, I'm just making this up because you all look like you need a little bit of a break. You look good though as you look like you need a break. <laughs> Other false Christs are going to say, you know what, as long as we're Christians and as long as we're serving God, you know, it's all going to be good. God is going to bless us. And our experiences are going to be good. Our marriages are going to be good. Our families are going to be good. Our kids are going to be good. Our parents are going to be good. Our jobs are going to be good. Society is going to be good. We're going to be safe and sound. And so you just, you know, everything's fine. Jesus says, you know what I'm going to tell you ahead of time? It's not all going to be fine. It's going to get to the point where you're going to run for the hills. Well, we could all say, what a downer Jesus is. Or we could say, isn't it amazing that he's honest? This is how it's going to be. I want an easy life. I want experiential blessings. I want prosperity. I want it all. I want it now. Sounds like an ad. (laughs) But I have to know that there is a hostile world and sometimes it grows in its hostility. And it seems as if, as we look toward the end, it's going to increase in hostility. Twenty-six says, so if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Sure seems, well, even, even that text. It's going to be so obvious. And then he goes on to say how obvious it is in verse 28. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And you're like, ew. Well, Jesus said it, so we're just going to go with it. It's going to be so obvious. And I think this is true 70 AD and later. It's going to be so obvious when the abomination of desolation happens and the Romans invade and the Romans ransack everything. It's going to be so obvious you don't have to think, well, I wonder if if it's happened. No, it's going to be utterly obvious. Just like the second coming is going to be utterly obvious. It's not going to be in secret over here. It's not going to be over here in some other kind of dark place. It was patently obvious for all to see then. It's going to be patently obvious for all to see in the future. So don't believe the crackpots who say something about a secret return or a secret Messiah or something like that, just as they shouldn't have, we shouldn't have. Yesterday, we were in Council Bluffs. It was amazing. We were in Council Bluffs yesterday outside of the city and we, we looked up and we could see five birds of prey. I don't know what they were, but they're some of the biggest ones I've ever seen in the Midwest. And it was awesome and awful and terrible. And they're flying around, circling. And we were in a group of people and we all started looking up. And, and we didn't all think, oh, how nice. I wonder what's going on. <laughs> we, we, we all thought, you know what? Something's either dead, dying, or about to die. <laughs> and it was obvious what was happening, right? We were at a mountain bike race, and so we said to the kids, if you crash, <laughs> carnage. Anyway, he just uses it as an illustration, I take it. It's going to be obvious when it happens. It's not a secret. It wasn't a secret then. It won't be a secret in the future. Uh, it can be seen. Then verse 29 says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, next thing on the timeline, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. That's echoing from Isaiah 13, 9 to 11. And in that text, especially, especially it looks really universal. It doesn't look localized, a la 70 AD. Um, seems to be associated with second coming, final advent judgment sort of thing. Verse 30, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, echoing Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. That looks a lot like second coming kind of stuff. Ultimate, not typology, but substance. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. That's Daniel seven thirteen to 14, fulfillment kind of talk, which is messianic, which is second coming. 
coming, not AD 70 in my opinion. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And that right there is maybe, maybe my favorite part. And maybe it's why we have killed prophecy conferences. Because somehow the prophecy conferences are all about the abomination of desolation and trying to figure that out. Or it's all about this, that, or the other thing when it comes to specified timing. And I've got some new secret text to be able to help you. Maybe it's because we've forgotten forgotten ultimately it's supposed to be about Christ. You know who we're going to trust? We're going to trust the sovereign king who's going to return to fulfill the promises of Daniel 7. Or Zechariah chapter 12. And please be impressed with me when you see it say there in verse 30. He comes in the clouds of heaven. Notice he comes in the clouds of heaven. Divine origin it's going to be. With power and great glory. So that's so interesting because he's about ready to be crucified. And you know what he's saying is sure to happen according to biblical prophecy. I'm going to return from heaven. Great power, great glory. That's what's going to happen. It's about him and his greatness as the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Christ, named Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. But keep going in verse 31. This is extraordinary. And he, notice he will not be sent, but he will send out, notice, not angels, but his angels. That's saying an awful lot about Jesus, the one who's about ready to be crucified. The angels belong to him. He's coming from heaven. He's unique with power and glory, messianic fulfillment kind of talk. Let's keep going. And a loud trumpet call and they will gather, notice, his elect. The elect are his. They belong to him because of what he's done by virtue of his perfect work, by virtue of the fact that he's the savior. They're his elect. They belong to him. They reflect him from the four winds and from one end of heaven to the other. Very, very expansive, universal. That's why I'm going to say if this is looking at eighty seventy, it's in shadow with a lot of figurative language that anticipates the actual. But please notice this. It's about, yes, he does it for us. He gathers his elect. I don't want to be misunderstood. We benefit, but you've got to see who the key actor is. You've got to see who the glorious one is, the powerful one is, the sovereign one is, and it is none other than the one who will be called Messiah of Messiahs. King of kings and Lord of lords. It's why we sing of his greatness. It's why we pray in his name. It's why we eat and drink in remembrance of him as we're about ready to do. It's why we worship the spotless lamb who was slain but is now standing. Prophecy should be ultimately about Christ for his glory and for his people. I promise we'll do more next time. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for time together in your word. We're grateful. I confess that there's so much I don't know, but I'm grateful for learning more. Help us to keep learning. Help us to to not be like Jesus will warn against as we keep reading in the future, those who set dates and those who say they know the time and the hour. Help us to not be distracted by such foolishness. But help us to have our attention riveted upon Christ, the one in who we can trust in this life and in the next, that we can trust him for tomorrow and we can trust him for the days ahead, regardless of our struggles. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.